Hello, everyone, and welcome to Grip Locked Foundation Disc Golf's weekly podcast. I'm Hunter. I'm normally joined by Trevor, but right now we're on the road. We're at Idlewild in Burlington, Kentucky, so I'm joined by Brody instead. Uh, we'll hopefully have Trevor back next week. We're in a little bit of a weird situation here. We got the hotel room. We got lamps all around us, um, but I, I don't think I still think it's a little bit too dark, and we're missing a piece to my boom arm, so I'm having to go handheld here but it's regardless cool. regardless we're getting this taken <laughs> care of and we're getting yeah. this out yeah. uh, so i think we're going to talk about a few different things here but uh first off this is your first time out at this course at this event um what do you think of it what do you think of the course and what is your game plan going to the event yeah i think you know coming into this tournament there's obviously been a lot of talk and chatter about it um a lot of people have uh said oh wait until you play idle wait until you see Idlewild. you know after playing some of the courses i've previously played this is definitely a completely different ball game i think toboggan had maybe one two holes that have fairly tight gaps um but this course out here i mean other than a handful of holes you're having to hit really specific lines and then even when you do hit those specific lines, your next shot on a lot of them are pretty tricky. So um, I am actually happy that I did get to play Vinhorse before this course because I feel like that made it less of a shock. Um, I don't think if you guys haven't watched that um, or if you're listening to the podcast, make sure you go to Foundation's YouTube channel and check out the, the footage from that tournament because... If you haven't, I don't think you realize how difficult of a course that was. Yeah. Um, where the winner would the winner end up shooting? Would Paul end up shooting um, for two rounds? Like uh, ten or eleven under, I believe. Something like yeah, just over double. There was digits. only there was only two players under par for the whole event. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, it was an insanely difficult course. So I'm happy that I was able to play that. I feel like also the course um, I was playing prior to coming out here was also a very difficult course. Um, it's a little bit of a drive for me, but I think that's what I'm going to have to start doing is playing courses that are more pro style in my area versus these like pitch and putt courses I have been playing. So coming out here, it wasn't as big of a shock that I think maybe some people were expecting. It's very difficult. Don't get me wrong. It's a very difficult course, but, you know, it's attackable. There's holes out there that I feel pretty confident that if I throw a good shot, I can, I can make birdies. Um, and I'm excited about the opportunity. Yeah, one thing I noticed when I was playing with you um, is your game's kind of developing into you're throwing a lot more forehands off the tee. Mm-hmm. Um, it might just be because it's a wooded course, but what what is the reasoning for that at this specific course? Is it just trying to hit gaps, or is that just what you're feeling most comfortable with? Yeah, I think I think prior to this, really prior to this tournament, from the Disc Golf Pro Tour side, I didn't have really a forehand with drivers. So okay. fairway drivers or distance drivers, throwing a forehand was still very foreign to me, and I did not have the confidence Mm. where I would go out and I would throw, let's say I had 10 Zeus's, I would go throw and maybe like two of them were good and then four were like adequate and then the other four were like absolute trash. You know, just nose up, hyzer, straight right. And there was a lot of holes that at Toboggan that I feel like the forehand was the play 
and I struggled on some of those holes just confidence wise, but I've been really, really working on my forehand since then. The tournament that I just played in, in Dallas, had a lot of holes that I was throwing forehand drivers with and hitting lines with. And then the course, obviously, I was practicing prior to coming out here was also another course that required a lot of forehand drivers. So, uh, you know, I feel like right now I don't really have, I would say, I don't really have like the turnover forehand yet Mm -hmm. for like max distance. But um, if I can throw, I have a kind of a beat in Zeus a little bit that I can throw on a little bit of a hyzer and it kind of flips up just a little bit for me. And I can get decent distance out of that. I can get anywhere from you know 360 to about 380 feet on on a big bomb. And I think a lot of these holes really require you know 325 to 350. If you can get that distance on some of these holes, you'll have like a nice easy little shot in that you can just carve with a zone or something like that, or even a you know a putter essentially with a backhand. So I think for me. I've made the switch of where before throwing like the turnover backhand shots wasn't really my cup of tea. That's the exact that like throw never happens in ultimate. Mm-hmm. You never very especially power shots. You're yeah. not really ever throwing a backhand like that. Um, so that shot just is the least comfortable for me. And I felt like I always really was forcing that shot a lot and playing with Paul too, who has probably. I think it's safe to say he has the best backhand in disc golf. Yeah, I don't know who would, I don't know who would top him. Yeah, so playing with him, you know, he is going to go to that backhand every time if he can. He really only is going to throw forehand when that is the perfect shot, right? Mm-hmm. And the backhand doesn't work. So playing with him, you know, you see him constantly throwing all these backhands, 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 and I was trying to do the same thing where now I feel like you know, I'm attacking a hole based on what I think my skill set is going to give me the best chance at getting birdie. So do you think that that's from like this tournament leading up the first few practice rounds you played without Paul? Mm -hmm. Is that, has that kind of changed your mentality to where you're having to look at a hole and say, what's best for my game instead of having like what you were just saying, you see Paul, or if you're playing with you know, Tristan Tanner or Emerson where before were you finding that their game was kind of influencing your decisions and possibly hurting your game in a sense? I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to play with Paul and see how successful he is and not think that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, but that is what works for him. And I need to start doing stuff that works for me now. Obviously I'm still watching and seeing what he's doing and and trying to emulate certain things and, and get better at certain things for sure. But I need to do what I think is going to make me the most successful right now. Mm-hmm. And I think playing the course by myself. Now, obviously, I did a lot of um, I watched a lot of film coming into this. So I was pretty familiar with the, the holes that, you know, they look different in person than they do on on video. But I was watching a lot of guys like Kevin, a lot of guys like, um, oh, I'm trying to think who the other guy was. I'm blanking on his name. Mm. Conrad's normally up there. But yeah, it was Conrad, but he throws back in. I'm trying to think of someone else that was in the finals. It was Calvin. He's he's a backhand player too. It was someone else, but kind of forehand dominant player. So whenever they stepped up to a hole and they were going with a forehand, 
those were the ones that I was kind of marking down in my notes, like see if the forehand, you know, if you feel confident throwing that there. And yeah, when I went out to the practice round, you know, I kind of could see what all shots, all the type of shots that they were doing and then basically get to pick and choose once I was looking at it and throwing multiple shots, which one I felt the most confident one. And we, we talked earlier about like hole number nine, for example, that was a hole. And that's the hole that like Conrad had that nasty ace on. It's that little, little turnover backhand that he throws mm-hmm. through the gap. It's only about 254 feet, but it's a very interesting line because you need something to go kind of straight left yeah. away from the basket and then kind of mid flight start turning towards the basket. And I, for the the first two rounds, two and a half rounds, I was trying to force a forehand mm-hmm. and trying to f- just like what disc, maybe it's not the, the get freaky zone. Maybe it's this, maybe it's this. And there was a couple that I got in the circle, but it, it just felt like a very delicate shot. And so today was the first day that I actually busted out my, uh, my fierce, and just threw it on like a little baby hyzer, almost flat down the line, and it broke perfectly. And I was like, "There it is. That's it." So I think sometimes you have to be able to to change things up on the fly when it's not working. For, you know, when something's not working for you. But for me, I think the big difference at this tournament I'm hoping for is the confidence level. Mm. Toboggan. There was multiple holes. I was stepping up. Seventeen is a good one. Six, I mean, 15, 16, and 17, that stretch right there, never felt confident on the tee all three days. Literally was like, I don't know where this is, this is going. I didn't have any confidence. And uh, right now, I don't think there's a hole that I don't have. I, I don't feel confident in throwing the shot. Wow. So is that just from preparation? Or like what 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 is exactly is it, you know, that change that confidence we're only talking to a week or two what mm-hmm. kind of clicked in the past few weeks that's a di- that causes this difference going into this tournament versus going into Glow? yeah so i think the biggest one first is i worked a lot between uh Glow and this tournament on my forehand and and being confident in throwing you know hyzer flat baby turnovers um with drivers mm. and so now i feel like yeah maybe i mean you saw today there was a couple that were a little eh, but <laughs> my misses aren't aren't nearly as bad yeah as before where i would literally just shank it straight right so i feel confident in that but then also i do think the preparation is huge uh at toboggan we just played so we would just play all 18 holes yeah, maybe we throw a couple shots here and there and then we just play another 18 holes and that was it. And I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't think that's the right way for me, at least for me to practice. Like I don't, I shouldn't be spending the same amount of time on a hole that I have dialed in on a hole that I don't have dialed in. Um, hole three at hole three at Toboggan was another hole that not once in my practice rounds, I think we did like four, maybe five practice rounds out there. And I probably threw maybe seven or eight shots on that hole throughout those practice rounds. I don't think, I think only like one out of those seven or eight was, was actually inbounds. So tournament time comes up. 
I mean, what kind of like? What are you thinking? Like, yeah, you're like I have I'm a one in eight shot. I'm one in eight of making this. So, you know, for me that was like hole three. The first couple times I played hole three here at Idlewild, um, I didn't really have good shots at it. And you know, today, you know, I grinded on it and threw probably ten shots today. And so I felt like, okay, this is the disc. This is the line. And now I know, as long as I execute it, it's going to be a good shot. Yeah. Where before at toboggan like i'm walking up and i'm i'm literally thinking like is this the right disc what angle do i need to release this on and you know we had that a little bit on hole number one too with the wind situation mm, like mm-hmm. the the disc that was working here at idawa it's a little it's a huge par four like 684 feet i think it's close to 700 up. yeah it's close yeah. to 700 i think but plays downhill the wind's normally at your back, and my first time playing it, I threw my Hades on a hyzer, flips over, and then you know lands in circle two. I throw the second Hades, flips over, lands in circle two, and I was like, oh my gosh, this hole's easy. What the heck? And then the next time I play it, the wind is like gone. There's no wind. I and I'm like, okay, I just throw the same disc. It never comes out. So it just it just flips over and then literally just rides straight right. And you're like, dude, you got to throw a different disc. So that's super helpful too, is playing playing in different wind conditions or at least like continuing to remember like, okay, wind is going to have a, a play. So just jotting down notes like I'm currently throwing the shot and it works right now with no wind. Mm. If there is going to be wind, I need to adjust. Yeah. So taking notes like what you were just saying is that because that's something that I've seen a lot of players do, but I've also seen a lot of players not do. And that's something that's very, I've always been curious about that because I always, I always took notes. I'm a very, I liked not having to think during a tournament. I liked stepping up and knowing, knowing my bag well enough to know there's a tailwind now. So if I have a, if I have a Zeus with no wind and there's a tailwind, I'm going crank. And if there's a headwind, I'm going force type of a thing. But I always wrote notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I don't think Paul takes notes. He just has played courses for so long yeah. that he just knows what shot to execute and knows his bag so well but was is the notes something that is translating over from golf for you is that something you did in golf i've always seen players with their like detailed caddy books books, yeah is that something from that you think or is it just you know you don't know your bag well enough yet that you you aren't confident in a tournament making those decisions on the fly yeah i think i mean i think you know it's it's interesting because you just said like the number one player in the world doesn't do it. So the argument of like, I think everyone should do it. It's kind of tough to make that argument with the best player. But honestly, I do think if Paul had a caddy and did take notes and whatnot, or, or had his caddy like walk the course, there would be probably, he, he probably over the course of a season might shave off a couple of strokes because you know, his decision-making is pretty solid. Like there's very few times where he makes a mistake decision-making wise, but there might be a time or two where his caddy could have information like, Hey, um, like one of the holes we were talking about how the, uh, Island you could lay up short of the Island and be in the circle. So if you have, instead of trying to throw a difficult upshot that might make it on the island and might not, 
if you had an upshot that you could 100% with certainty lay up short and still be in the circle, and even for Paul, you know, his circle is probably like, what, 38 feet? Where he's like consistent. Yeah, yeah, 38 feet or so. So like if I was his caddy, I would just give him that option. I'd be like, hey, if you don't feel 100% that you can land this on the island here, just throw it up right to that little spot right there, short of the island. OB's not in play at all, and you have an 838-footer for birdie. Yeah. And that could just that could shave save him one stroke. Now, um, I think especially for newer players, having a caddy and knowing the course and taking notes is is huge. And I would almost probably the day like Monday before tournament, like tournament week, I would most likely if I had a caddy would like walk the course with them. And we would just talk about stuff on the course, whether it's OB. I mean, today we didn't know OB was left of 16. Yeah, down at the Nudie Island. Exactly. That's something that um, in golf, caddies would actually, a lot of times they would go out without the player. Mm. So the player might be on the green putting or might be on the driving range or whatever. And the caddy's walking the course and he's taking down all those notes. He knows he knows like when you're on 16, the par five, you know, when you're at that tree, like, I don't even know the distance right now, but the caddy would know the distance from the tree to make, uh, OB like the, to make it to that landing area. Right. I got you. And just knowing that stuff of like, Hey, it's 450 feet. Or if I'm short of that, Hey, it's 510 feet. I don't think you should go for it. You know, versus we're just kind of guessing. And a lot of times, a lot of these players are just kind of guessing at, landing areas and i think in a course like this especially where you're going to throw it's impossible to practice all the scenarios that you're going to get out here it's impossible so you're going to get in situations where you have to figure out the best the best option and if you guys like a a prime example is if you want to watch the fpo uh, of last year there was a really good battle between page and cat coming down to the wire they're tied even uh they're whatever they were they're tied going into 18 i believe both of them didn't have the best of drives and um page tries to make what looks to be like a pretty miraculous shot to get out so if you don't know if you're if you're listening at home hole 18 is basically a super narrow fairway with tons of trees if you go left or right you're dead and then it's like what, probably 350 feet to the to get the out yeah. into the opening, somewhere in that. So it's about 350 feet, and then you're into a big, huge open field, and there's two trees down by the basket. But once you kind of get out into the field, you're fine. And then f- from the the gap, like out into the field to the basket, can't be more than like 250 feet, something like that, right? So watching her play that hole, I learned a lot because she tries to make a miraculous shot in trouble out. She tries to get out of the the gap and she ends up like turning it over and it cut rolls or something and she gets left. And now she's basically has to pitch out or, you know, she can't get to the basket from there where if she would have just laid up 50 feet short of the gap and had like a 300 foot shot in she would have definitely for sure been able to get a putt at par. Yeah. Right. And laying up to that spot would have been a lot easier than what she was doing. 
So you got to know where to throw your next shot to mm-hmm. be able to attack. And that's going to be huge, I think, at this tournament is when you are off the fairway and you're in positions that you've never been on, there's going to be times where you're like, I can't go to the green. So you need to figure out, okay, where is the best place for me to lay the next shot up? Yeah, I think this practicing this course has... I've played this course before. I've played this tournament before. But for some reason, this time around, practicing this course has brought up, in my mind, the question of why aren't there caddies in disc golf? Because there's been there multiple be. times of I whether lo- it be you. I would you, love to pay someone to caddy for yeah, sure. Whether it be you, Paul, you know, whoever, Hannah, whoever I'm practicing with, there's so many times where there's a situation and they do it a few times or like with you, you'd step up to a hole or step up to a shot and you just want to talk through it. Mm-hmm. And in a practice round, I feel like there's always players to bounce that off of. But then when you get into a tournament, it's weird for a player to have a cat. And I know this event caddies aren't allowed because yeah. um, of COVID, but in day to day tournaments, you normally don't see a caddy. And if you do, it's either just like a some friend, friend yeah. some random guy. Uh, I know Paul had Tompkins for a long time, but he didn't consult him much. It was more of a carry my bag and he would ask him here or there, like, mm-hmm. should I go Avenger? Should I go uh, Onyx or wh- yeah. whatever, something like that. Do you think that the biggest part of why we don't see caddies in disc golf is the payout that players can't really give the like, it's 10% in golf, right? Like 10%, yeah, 10%. to the caddy. Mm-hmm. Is it it's, because of you, that? It's, I think there's a bonus too if you win. So like if you win, you know, who, who decides that? Wait is it the p- between the, the player and the caddy? Yeah, player and the caddy. So mm-hmm. some players might be offering a caddy fifteen percent, or oh, is it just like could, a standard? They could theoretically. I think the standard is ten percent, and I think that's what most of the players do. But obviously, I, I'm pretty sure too when you win an event, you're supposed to give the caddy a little a bit more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, cat- caddies are super interesting, and I mean that would be actually a sweet person to bring on. I, I know a couple of them on the PGA Tour just to bring on and ask some questions because their life is very interesting because it's so based on their player. You know, if their player is playing well or if maybe they get injured and stuff, you know, their travel schedule, all that stuff. It's very interesting talking to some of them, but I think they're worth every bit of it. And you'll see guys too on tour when they have a good caddy that they like, they, they don't switch around. Yeah. They keep that guy with them. And there's a reason to that. And, I think what you just said is 100% right where you're like, you want to just like talk stuff out. Mm-hmm. I think when you're like on the bubble with something, like should I go with this disc or should I go with this disc or should I try to hit that gap or should I try to hit that gap? It's sometimes difficult for you to 100% commit to something. And I think when you have another voice, another person that you trust, say, hey, that gap, I, dude, you can hit it. Let's do it. I think that sometimes might give you just a little bit of a confidence boost yeah. that you need to just commit to shots. And I think you see that a lot of times in coverage, watching some people is just, it's not so much that they don't have the skill. It's just sometimes they don't a hundred percent, a hundred percent commit to the shot. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's always like a, a question in the back of their head of, or you see players walk up with two. I mean, I've had that and it's, yeah. it's yeah. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't be walk. Yeah. I mean that, I, I I shouldn't say you shouldn't be because it's okay to not know what shot to throw, but 
that's where if you are walking up to a tee with two disc, two discs, that's where a caddy could totally help you. Yeah. So I just pulled up Paul's stats um, to look at this because I feel like Paul has pretty consistently been the the highest paid out uh, player as far as like um, his prize money year over year. And if you go from basically 2015 through 2019, the range is, uh, it looks like 45 to 72,000. Um, with so an average pretty close to, to 60. A few years in a row, he hit 57. So, I mean, if you're looking at a caddy, I mean, that's what, $5,000? Yeah, that's not good. So, for a caddy to even be getting $30,000 a year, the payout has to increase by $250,000 to the best player. And that's to have one player paying a caddy. 30 grand so at the current state of disc golf and the current payout where we don't have outside money we don't have the payout that you know you really need to be supporting a caddy it would almost be like discraft has to bring on a caddy for paul or yeah it has to be like, like in that. a contract or something like yeah like that. You, you get a you this much guaranteed plus x amount salary for a caddy slash driver or yeah some or, type of role like that or you you know you find someone that's like a teacher or something where during you know, the summer they, they have the, just... they have the summers off and so they can they can go to these tournaments in the summertime yeah yeah because i mean no one no one's quitting their day job for five thousand seven thousand dollars no but i do think that's something that as a disc golf grows that's something we're going to see in the sport that and swing coaches mm. i think both of those because there's even there's times where who are the like who who would you say right now are like the biggest voices in like disc golf instruction there's not really any i mean players have done their own thing like will shoestrick did the dgi disc golf instructions paul and nate used to do a lot of clinics um i know like infinite disc used to host clinics at the utah open and they would publish those online on youtube um drew gibson has some pay uh form review type thing but there's there's no like there's no person geared to, towards pros, if that makes sense. There's a lot of people that put out stuff for AMS uh, and like helping you develop your good form, yeah. but there's no one currently that mm-hmm. is marketing themselves as a swing coach for pros. Because there, there's t- tournaments where Paul, I've you know been playing with him, and his he's like, man, my timing's just off. I got to figure this out, or man, my putter just doesn't feel right, and he eventually figures it out himself. But it'd be way easier if someone Yeah, someone who just studied his form and, and knew, this knew is his form on, yeah. and could immediately like even mid tournament be like, dude, you're missing your putts low because instead of coming down, you're coming back on your back foot. And so you're loading your back foot instead of loading straight down or something like that. Whatever it may be, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that those two things are things that as disc golf grows will be like crucial to helping a lot of players get to that next level. Yeah, I mean there needs to be there needs to be tiers of of coaches, right? There needs to be the coaches that are are with the top players and then, you know, maybe they have a couple up and coming guys that they coach as well. And then there needs to be the, you know, almost like the local pro that is giving lessons and stuff to the um the amateurs. Yeah. Um and I mean that was I would say that was a huge, huge reason of how I got so good in golf so quickly, you know, going from, I don't know what I, I don't, I don't really know what my handicap was when I first started, but it was probably like low double digits, maybe something like that. And, you know, went all the way to, uh, 
I don't I don't know if everyone under, I feel like a lot of people don't understand handicaps, but essentially I would shoot like on an average course, let's just say ten over par. So you were like nine ten rated in disc golf. Sure. And then I was able to start shooting like two or three under. So ten twenty. Yeah. And really roughly, but that's how the PDGA breaks it down. In about eight months. Okay. Um, So going from a nine hundred to over a thousand rated player in eight months. Yeah. And you're saying that that was mainly because of like a a swing coach? Yeah, I think I mean obviously, you know, I was practicing an insane amount and, and doing all that stuff that you need to do. But yeah, he would, you know, going to him, he knew exactly what was going on and gave me building blocks to work with and, and was able to, uh, really help me like any questions I had, like, Hey, I just had this shot, you know, super specific. Like I just had this shot. How do I do it? He would be able to help me with that. But more importantly, he was just able to help me get a more consistent swing Mm-hmm. something that I could control, shape the ball and do all that stuff. So, you know, I know a lot of people have talked like, Oh, you've gotten so good because you play with Paul and stuff. And I think a lot of that is me just being able to watch what he's doing and try to doing, try to doing the same things. And then when he does give his little nuggets, you know, like soak it up and try to do it. But right now I think really the only the main reason why I've been able to improve is trial and error. Really? That's, that's it. You know, like for me throwing nose down with a forehand, I could not figure out how to do it for the longest time. And the, it finally took me here. I'll do it with this thing, but it finally took me to where I was throwing essentially like this. And now I basically just rotate my wrist and I do that because I like to I like to hold the disc kind of like vertical like this mm-hmm. and then I take it back and I kind of like it. how Paul brings yeah. it back and through. And before I was kind of doing ultimate frisbee and I wasn't really thinking too much of it and like the nose down I was like trying to get over top of it, but now I just make before I go and throw I go like that. So just turning your I, wrist, forcing just, the nose kind of down with your wrist just, angle. Exactly. I go like that and now I hold it that way. And then when I go and drive it through, now I'm driving through nose with down. With nose down. And it was a super easy thing, but it took me like two weeks of trial and error of throwing multiple times to finally get like, oh, I actually have to rotate my wrist this way, which is so weird and not comfortable for me coming from ultimate where you know, now that I know that I could easily teach someone if they were having a hard time, I could probably tell them, Hey, do this and it might work for them. Like just thinking about someone that's coaches disc golf and that's all they ever do. Gosh, I feel like so, so much stuff. Like even like today, like you basically told me how to th- like do like a half bid from like 60 mm. feet, you know, and just having someone to do that I think would be crucial and especially at tournaments too. Like if you have a bad day at a tournament, the last thing you should do is just go home and hope that you can sleep it off and wake up and play better tomorrow. Like that probably is not going to (laughs) work most of the time. You know, when, when a golfer has a bad day, he's on the range. If, If it was ball striking, if it was putting, you know, he's on the green, if it was chipping, he's around the green, but like he, after his round, he's there. Yeah. And he's working out, trying to figure out what is it? How do I get it back? And I think that'll come with disc golf too. Cause right now, I think we're at the show up, warm up, play, done. See you tomorrow. 
where it, it probably should get to the point of where when your round's over, no one's going to have a perfect round. Yeah. So there's something that happened that you didn't play do do well. Mm-hmm. You should probably be working on that. Yeah, and that's what I'm going to do tomorrow. Or not tomorrow, rather. Well, tournament. I guess tomorrow because this podcast is recorded. Oh, yeah. So you're posting. When you're listening yeah. to this. When tomorrow. you're listening to this tomorrow on Friday. Yeah. After my round, regardless of whether I shoot super well or super bad, I'm probably going to either be doing field work or putting. Just yeah. so that way I have a little bit more confidence going into the next day. Yeah. Like the players that I know for sure do that and I've seen them do it at tournaments are Paul ricky eagle um and all I've those seen, guys are pretty good i've too. seen a few others but those 100 percent consistently i've seen multiple times where paul i think it was um i forget what trip it was but i was on a trip with paul and he just was not having a good tournament and there was like two or three holes that were getting to him and so he'd finish he finished his round you know and then just straight back to those three holes and just played them and I heard stories too of like different worlds where there was one or two holes that he just had his number that day and he would go back and he was there till after dark playing those holes because he needed to figure it out before he got there tomorrow. And Ricky, there's numerous stories of Ricky. I feel like, some, I forget who told me this the other day, but they said they showed up to the course at like 7 a.m. and Ricky was just putting. And then they went and played a full practice round and they got back to the practice green and Ricky was still putting. And they're like, did I just played a full practice? Did you leave? He's like, oh no, my putt just felt a little off, so I'm dialing it in. Yeah, that's the type of commitment that got Paul, got Ricky, and has gotten Eagle to where they are. Yeah, and just from the outside looking in, uh, for at different tournaments I'm going to, and just being a fan of the sports for the sport for years, I don't see it from a lot of players. I think that, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on because you've made your goals pretty obvious. You're you're not in this to kind of just you know, ride the wave, be at the low end of cashing and be yeah. happy. You're here to be, to compete. Compete, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to hear your part of this, but I feel like disc golfers right now are excluding the top, top guys and some of the rising talent. The middle crop is pretty happy with the, where they're at. And from what I've observed, their lifestyle, their practice routine is show up, play the course, learn the course a little bit, play the tournament, and then wherever I finish, I finish. I'm not too concerned with being the top of the top. It doesn't. There doesn't seem to be many players on tour right now with that kind of drive. Um, but well, that's I, all. That's all the fun stuff. Yeah, they want to. That's, li- that's all the stuff that's fun to do. Yeah. Um, but I want to know from your perspective coming in. It has pushing towards that top. Has pushing towards that top tier of players been harder than you expected? Uh, in your first year so far or on the other side has it been easier than you would think no I think it's kind of right where I thought it was going to be honestly I mean I think the lime uh, I think the lime knocked me back a little bit which I which is frustrating because um I felt like momentum was happening and then that that kind of jumped at me but no I think I think it's kind of honest it's kind of what I expected you know, I feel like I'm not obviously where I want to be yet, but you know, I, I keep got tell myself year one, you know, I'm not even a, a year into disc golf, but the fact that I'm able to at least 
put some holes and that's that's the big deal difference is i've put some holes i've put some front nines like my front nine at ddo was probably like my best front nine i've had so far um there was stretches at dglo where you know i was uh three or four under with a handful of easy holes coming up where i could have easily shot six or seven under for the round I haven't put together a full round yet. Yeah. And even not putting together a full round, I still have put myself in a position where, you know, I'm beating some people already. And, you know, that, that definitely boosts my confidence, but I'm definitely not where I want to be yet. But I knew getting into disc golf and just kind of seeing where it was at, I knew that I could outwork a lot of people. And by doing that, that would, that would be able to, I would be able to jump people quicker. Yeah. Where in golf, uh, I'm not going to outwork, I'm not going to really outwork that many people. I mean, sure. I could outwork some, but there's hundreds, if not thousands of people that are working just as hard as me. And they've been doing that for five plus years. Yeah. 10 plus years. That was going to be a lot more of a, do I have the skill? Do I just have the ability to to do it? And I feel like in disc golf, I like that's something that I actually have. You know, yeah. with my ultimate frisbee background, I actually do have a lot of kind of skills already that can help me. But now it's like, can I just outwork people mm-hmm. to get past them? Um, but yeah, like you were talking about all the stuff that you you see a lot of people do. That I mean, that's the fun part. Yeah. You know, I mean, look at, look at like your average amateur, you know, for the most part, are they going to a field and doing not just throwing and seeing how far you can throw? Cause I think that's what a lot of people think field work is, is just how far can I throw all my discs? Um, are they going to a field and actually working on angle control? Are they working on how it feels to throw a buzz at 70% versus a hundred percent, how it feels to to throw flex shots all sorts of different things are they working on that or are they simply just saying can i throw over 400 feet yeah and i think to be at the top of any sport you have to work on the little stuff and you have to work on the stuff that sucks the stuff that people people don't like to do um with ultimate frisbee that was track workouts you know like even though I ran track in high school, I I don't really like doing track workouts that much, especially when you're out of shape, you know, and you're doing the mile warm up and you feel like puking on lap <laughs> two. You haven't gotten into the actual work. Um, but that's the stuff that, that creates champions doing that stuff is, you know, the foundation of what is it's going to take to actually win and be a champion. So um, I think the more, the sport grows, the more players that come into it, I think those people are going to pass all those others that aren't working as hard. And those people that aren't currently working as hard, they have a decision to make. You know, do I want to be left behind or do I want to push myself and try to be up there too? Yeah. And I think you're seeing that, like, I think Eagle is a prime example. Um, obviously, I haven't been in the sport since this year, but I have been hearing from people and, and, and watching footage and, and hearing about his talent. Like he has really good talent. And I think this is the first year 
that he really is starting to put a staple on like no i'm 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 here i'm ready he's yeah. been it seems like it's he's not been, just talent anymore it seems like he's been putting in a lot of work behind the scenes yeah. when people aren't watching and it pays off yeah for sure um one one other thing that we've talked about before uh and you know you coming into the sport is a, looks a lot different than another player coming into the sport because of the name you already built for yourself so i'm curious let's take your name away mm-hmm. you have no social media you have nothing but you you're the player you are today you're coming into the sport sponsorless trying to make it on tour if you're that player what are what are you trying to do to survive on tour because payout we've talked about payout a ton on this podcast it's not you're not surviving on payout so if you're sponsorless, unless you're, unless you're getting the top five consistently yeah. top so 10 if you're sponsorless and you're trying to break out on tour what would be because i feel like you outside of you know what you've already done with your name i feel like puts you in a place where you can help people with this how do you, how would you kind of coach someone on building their brand where they can make a living without having to rely on a tournament payout type of a thing where where would you start i mean yeah i you know social media obviously is is the best place to go and you know i think people are drawn to i I would say people are probably drawn to the most like not realistic what's the word i'm looking for authentic like authentic just letting people know what's going on you know and 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 showing your true self i think that's probably the and that's also the easiest thing like i i'm so happy that i didn't get into youtube as and, and like make a different name for myself like um obviously dark horse is like my brand you know a a brand of mine and like people you know kind of goes hand to hand with brody and dark horse whatever but i didn't like start my youtube channel as the dark horse and no one knew my name was brody and i put on like this act to me like youtube is just like me when i'm like on it's it's me like right now obviously i'm not jumping off the wall yelling or pumping my chest because we're doing a podcast why would i do that <laughs> uh but when like the youtube like i do do that stuff yeah. whether i'm you know playing whether the cameras are on me or not i do do that stuff but like youtube it's just like i do it all the time i think it's social media is a lot harder for people that put on a persona that's not them ever Mm-hmm. you know, whether it's like, all right, I'm going to be this character or whatever. And they're never, they're never like that. It's way harder because then you feel like you always have to like put on an act to do stuff. So I would say be super authentic, let people know where you're at, where you're coming from, uh, share your goals. What, what are you trying to accomplish? Cause people love getting behind people to help them, uh, accomplish their goals. And, and then just, you know, hopefully by you being yourself, you bring something to the table that people want to attach themselves to and, and follow. I mean, that, that in the, in the, the day is what you're trying to do. You're trying to inspire people. You're trying to make people happy. You're trying to bring something to someone's life that they, that they, they wouldn't be able to find elsewhere, I guess you could say, or they, they go to you to find that. Yeah. If that makes sense, not to say they wouldn't be able to find that elsewhere because there's tons of people doing great stuff. But, you know, if someone's having a bad day, 
and they turn on my YouTube channel to watch a video to get, you know, make their day a little bit better. That's awesome. I mean, or maybe it inspires them. You know, that's the other cool thing is inspiring people to go out and try disc golf. Um, I think all those things are, are, are huge and crucial and I don't think there's one right way of doing it. And at the end of the day, I think you got to do it yourself. I think something in disc golf that, you know, there is, there might be like a little bit of like a copycat situation going on in disc golf where, you know, someone sees something work or be successful and then everyone just does it. And then it also, it just like everything is kind of blends in and it, it's just kind of all the same. I mean, you can kind of, you know, I don't know if we want to get into hot topic, but you can get, you know, look at people's like logos, for example. They're all kind of the same. They're two initials blended together. Kind of. They're, <laughs> just, they're all like the same. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's okay to stand out, be different, like be yourself. That's the thing. We're all different. Not everyone's the same. And, and maybe at the end of the day too, something that, I see sometimes a little bit is like everyone's like nervous to upset someone or like say something that, uh, say something that like maybe some people will not like or whatever. And it's like, I I don't think you can try to please everyone. Yeah. You know, you can't, people are going to get, there's going to be some people that are going to be upset. I'd much rather for me personally, like I much rather have a fan base that knows who I am, supports me, and I can be myself than trying to be someone I'm not to try to get everyone to like me and then them not even really knowing who I am. Yeah. They, them liking the, we'll the just put the dark horse, but not the Brody Smith. Yeah, exactly. Like I want to be able to like have people come up to me and talk to me. Not right before I tee off though. <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me say that. Not right before I tee off. Um, but yeah, I want people to come up to me and talk to me. And, you know, we've all heard horror stories of people like meeting their their heroes or their, their you know, f- biggest, uh, I don't know, we, YouTuber, social media person. They're yeah. like, and like being let down, like, oh my gosh, that person sucked. I thought they were cool and they sucked. Like, I don't want that to happen. So I want like people to, when they come up and talk to me, like, I'm just a normal dude. Yeah. Their expectations are who you actually are. Yeah, let's talk. Yeah, um, you you mentioned a little bit on people's opinions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there's going to be negative feedback and stuff like that. Yeah. With you coming in disc golf, we've seen the positive. We've also seen a lot of negative response. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it's coming from I think it's coming from a, a good place sometimes of you're getting a sponsored spot when you hadn't played a round and, and stuff like that. When people, people just didn't care that you had a social media following. Uh, they were basically coming, they were coming from a good spot in the idea of they wanted you to prove it first, which I understand that, but you know, I fully understand the marketing side and why you deserved what you got. Um, that definitely sounded like a drum when you hit that, <laughs> but what has been the over? overall response to the disc golf community from your eyes has it been in general positive and like a welcoming community or has it been somewhat abrasive to you coming into it this year you know you bring up something and we can actually maybe even tangent talk about this in a second if like i was talking to someone about this the other day disc golf community what is that when you say the disc golf community what is that to you 
Like, what is the definition of the disc golf community? I think just like the players in general, people who everyone that plays disc golf is in the disc golf community. I would say everyone who just loves disc golf and plays it. That's what so, I'm talking about. The broad disc yeah. golf community. So, I think there's communities within disc golf. Yeah. So is there is there an NBA uh, or a basketball community? To a certain degree, like it's something that or a football community. I think it's like, different. Would, have you ever heard anyone say that though? Like, no. Has anyone? Has any, yeah. Has anyone ever been like, yeah, the football community is just really backing this guy. No, it's more fan base in, in football and team it's, sports. Th- it's fan bases. Well, I think it's just the smaller side of things. Yeah, because if think sport, if I meet you and you're you know disc golf, mm-hmm. we immediately can bond because it's small. Yes, if yeah. I meet you, and you know basketball. I'm not bonding with you over that until you say you like Duke. Yeah, then we're bonding. Yeah, so I think I think as disc golf grows, the idea of like everyone's. And maybe this is something that's scary for people. And maybe this is this was an issue with Ultimate to with me a lot, is they wanted the sport to like stay small, um, which I was obviously against that. I wanted <laughs> the sport to grow, and you know I would love like when my kids grow up, I'm gonna like, talk to them about disc golf and Ultimate, and like give them the option of playing those sports. Um, where I didn't have that option growing up. Yeah. It was basketball, football, soccer, tennis, golf. You know, those were the sports. Ultimate was never an option. So I want the opposite. I want it to grow and I want like the disc golf community to kind of honestly kind of like disappear, which I know might be like, <laughs> I know there might be a lot of people being like, what are you talking about? But I want the sport to be so big to where there you can't, they become sub communities yeah there's sub exactly there's sub communities of like when you say like oh my disc golf community you're talking about like your local club like the people that you play with or whatever you're not talking about some dude across the country um and i think that's fine and i think honestly that that would make it cooler because then you know you're making it a sport that's big hopefully get big enough to where you know these small communities can thrive really but um to answer your question because i know that was kind of a tangent but to answer (laughs) to answer your question yeah i think you know i think you had fans of mine that are going to support me no matter what my rider dies you know when i started twitch they're over there i suck at gaming they're still watching they're still supporting me you know i go to golf they're still watching. They're still supporting. You know, I could I could start a painting channel and they would still watch and support. And those are my, you know, those are the people that I will ever ever be uh, grateful for because I know that I'm always able to pursue what I'm passionate about mm. and never have to worry about what people are going to think. Um, and then I would say you have uh, the fans that are kind of on the fence. You know, the guys that were like, I play ultimate Frisbee. What the heck are you doing? Or the golfers, a lot of golf people were like, gosh, I keep hitting this thing. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) A lot of the golf people being like, go back to golf, go back to golf. What is going? Oh wait, what disc golf? What? And those were the people that like, once they kind of saw it. And I think you can tell from my content, like I'm actually passionate about it. I think a lot of the people that are like saying these comments of like, oh, Brody's just going to play for like a year and then he's going to be gone those people don't watch my videos. They don't listen to what I have to say. They're just, they're just words in the wind. They just want to be heard and, and, and go, go off. 
because if you actually watch, you can see I'm passionate about this. And you know, the passion I had in ultimate Frisbee, the passion that I had in golf is here now in disc golf. And you know, it's not going to go anywhere. And, um, so I think that changed a lot of those people's minds. And then, you know, the, I would say the small amount of people that are upset with whatever I do, um, kind of goes back to like, you, you can't please everyone. Yeah. No matter what you do, there's going to be someone that's going to be upset. And, um, you know, unfortunately those are the people that like to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. And those are the people that when something doesn't go their way, they want to blame everything else instead of looking at, well, what, what did I do to cause this? I can't help those people other than I can, all I can do is, you know, pray that, you know, they find something to be able to change their life because that, that life sucks. I've, I've been there before and it sucks. Like being nasty, hateful, turning to that always versus trying to see the good in everything. It's not a fun life. Yeah. And, uh, until you can get out of that rut, you know, you're kind of just headed, headed in the wrong direction. Yeah, for sure. I was just always curious about that. Cause you know, as you've kind of joined foundation and more of our content and stuff like that, those, those comments have just started coming not directed towards foundation. There's always been comments hated towards foundation. And when it's hated towards me, that's easy because yeah. you know, it's, like I think when it's directed towards you, you take it a lot different than when someone makes a hateful comment towards you as like a friend or towards Paul. I always read that. I'm like, geez, like that's just ruthless. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. And so I was just curious your your perspective because my perspective when I came into disc golf, it took me years to find a mean disc golfer until I got into social media. When I got into, then all the mean disc golfers kind of came out. But and when it just came being on the course, wanting to learn, you know, the there's a pitch and putt near me that a, a blind guy could go out and shoot seven under super easy course yeah. if you're throwing 100 feet you can birdie holes i was shooting like 10 over when i first started and i went to a weekly and i was welcome with open arms they showed me you know people helped me they gave me advice like why are you throwing this disc you should try this disc you should do whatever and that made me fall in love with the sport so much because the basketball community that i was a part of where like some of my local teams and stuff were super clickish and it was hard even within the team to break into some of these clicks to where even if I was a starter on a team, whether it be AAU or high school or whatever it is, I might not feel a part of that team. In disc golf, I never felt that. And so I was wondering with you yeah. if that was the same well, type of It's more of, of an individual sport too, which yeah. helps. Yeah, for yeah, sure. you're right. The, uh, you know, anyone that's played team sports knows that sometimes it's very difficult especially going on to a new team to like if there have been other guys on that team before to like break into it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think having the individual aspect of disc golf definitely helps um, with that. And yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, I think most people want to help others, Yeah, which is great. I think you see that in other sports, sports as well that are like individual surfing you see that skateboarding you see that um where you know people will just come up you know if you're trying to do a skateboard trick or something there might be someone there that literally just comes up doesn't even know who you are and like hey man I've, i see you're grinding over here try this this might help you yeah and i think those individual sports allow a lot of that where 
in a team, like you're never going to go to another team, mm-hmm. ma- like, be like <laughs> another team, be like, Hey, I see you guys really struggling with this. I think right now, this would actually help you a lot. Yeah. Um, so that is the cool thing about disc golf. And, um, like you said too, like I never met a mean disc golfer until I saw social media. Like there's people that suck in every sport. <laughs> <laughs> I've played every sport. And like one of my least favorite things from the ultimate Frisbee days were just how, ultimate frisbee people claim to be the best Mm. our sports the best we have the best people we follow spirit of the the game all this stuff and i'm like dude there's people in ultimate frisbee that absolutely suck that i would not want to have a friendship with or you know i would see them and be nice to them but like i'm not trying to hang out with that person i I don't i don't have anything in common with that person i think that's in every sport i i think I think you got to get rid of that mentality of like, oh, every all disc golfers are awesome people. No, they're not. Yeah. There's some people that aren't great. And there's some people that are, are awesome. But I, I don't think that should really have an impact of whether or not a sport is awesome. Yeah. You know, like golf, for example. Golf, for the longest time, were super s- snooty. And I think um, it's starting to slowly go away. Ultimate Frisbee, for the longest time, was a pot smoker like hippie sport and that is slowly kind of fading away like the type of people that play your sport shouldn't define the sport Mm. the sport should define itself yeah and if a group of people want to take a sport a different way i don't think that should be a negative or positive or whatever like it is what it is If, if if a handful of people want to do something and try to go off and do their own thing um i think that should be okay i don't think anyone really owns a sport yeah and and basically like no this is the only way of playing the sport or this is the only way you can act doing this sport yeah for sure and that's a lot of a lot of my like things that i talk about i'm just talking about the pros yeah like absolutely i think that's what the pros should be doing i'm not talking about you should have to wear a collared shirt going to your local course yeah to play disc golf by yourself that's silly yeah for sure uh and i think as far as like owning the sport type of a thing one thing that the more the more i've done this podcast and the more i've talked with trevor or whether it be you on or paul and we have all these different ideas of like what what can we do as a sport the more i've realized that with how fast disc golf's growing and the state of disc golf currently it's almost like the pro tour to a certain degree owns the sport to a certain degree because the decisions they're making now mm-hmm. and the, the decisions they're going to make in the next five to 10 years defines our sport for quite a while because they are at this point, And at least in my mind, they are the tour. They're the tour players seem to be prioritizing. They're the tour that they're putting out consistently good media, stuff like that to where they kind of, are steering the ship that is disc golf right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that all players I've ever met can agree with is disc golf needs outside sponsorships. And we've seen you recently in a few different videos working with DraftKings and stuff like that. Um, so first off, like with those sponsorships, was there any pushback when you're getting those brand deals on, hey, this is going to be in a disc golf video? They just care about views. So they couldn't care less. So then if you're talking to the Pro Tour... What are you? What is your advice on getting someone like DraftKings to sponsor? Get more views. 
So what do we do? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think we've talked about this a little bit of, of where I think some of their content shouldn't be behind the paywall. Mm. Um, yeah. I think, I think they should start doing stuff that is like, I get, I get why they have the paywall, right? It's expensive. They don't really have any sponsors, so they have to find a way of paying for it. And right now to pay for it, we kind of have to pay to get it right. Yeah. But something that they could do that the PJ tour does. That's really, really awesome is have the first six holes free every, every day. So the first 30 minutes is free. You're invested. You're seeing it. And you know, as minute 25 comes up, you get, you know, Jamie or Nate or whoever to be like, Hey, just letting you guys know, you know, five minutes, uh, the coverage will, you know, no longer be free. Make sure you go over to disc golf pro tour and, uh, get a subscription to continue to watch the action. Yeah. And then boom, 30 minutes goes. All right, guys, we are. See you later for all the free viewers. Uh, if you want to continue to watch, get a subscription, disc golf pro tour. And then continue running it like you would normally run it. That is going to one, honestly, that's going to convert a lot of people because you're going to have people. I mean, what sporting event would you watch? And then literally if there's like in the middle of the sporting event, be like, you have to pay a buck to watch the rest. We would probably, we probably would pay the dollar. Yeah. If, if we were entertained, if it was a good product, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Which I think the Disc Golf Pro Tour product is is solid. I've been pretty impressed with it. I think they can still do some things differently, but you know, for what it is, it's it's pretty solid for what you pay for. So I think that is huge because I think getting just more people involved and more people watching. But I think the other thing is you have to one you have to I think create more stories. There needs to be more stories talked about players. There needs to be um, I mean, we can go on crazy. We can go crazy tangent too, and we can say like, <laughs> I think the tour needs to be way smaller. Yeah, we've talked about that tons yeah, on this podcast. Way smaller. Um, I mean, how many when skateboarding was just trying to get big? How many how many professional skateboarders would be at an event? No clue. I don't either. But I bet <laughs> it's not over a hundred. <laughs> no. I bet it was maybe less than fifty. Well, yeah, but I feel like a skateboarding event is a much a different story like 50 skateboarders might be what about a surfing event how are those different than disc golf they're all individual events yeah but disc golf you have 18 holes to fill skateboarding you have one skate park you don't have to have someone on each hole like when the when the day starts there's seven there's 18 holes or 17 holes that no one's on yeah but you're having four people at a time is what i'm saying versus skateboarding Skateboarding, you have one person doing their run yeah. in a skate park. So yeah. if they run all day, you know, if they run the same hours at disc golf, they're going to have four, like disc golf's going to have four times more players, is what I'm saying. Okay. If a skateboarding runs 10 minutes and there's 10 minutes in between cards, you're getting yeah. four but more players. I don't players think it off. needs to be like, I don't think it needs to be like how many people can you get in a certain amount of time though. Well, I'm I just mean, saying, March, I don't know. March Madness, there's 64 teams. Yeah. There's not 150 teams. No. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I'm I just, think looking I'm just at the saying, like if you 
if you lower how many people are on tour, right? I think that changes a lot of things where you can have like right now, if you went to some random disc disc golf turn uh, disc golf course mm-hmm. and there was someone playing, and you walked up to them, and you asked them name as many disc golfer pros that you know. The average disc golfer, right? Mm-hmm. What what names are they coming up with? Well, I mean, they're probably gonna have five to ten. It's gonna be Paul. Big Germ, Nate yeah. Sexton, so there's there's Ricky. A hand, there's a handful, right? Yeah, and if you if you literally said, um, I don't know who, you know, I don't want to you know call out anyone's names really, but if I look up, uh, what was what was the last tournament? Mid America, Mid America Open, Mid America Open. So if I look up this tournament and uh, kind of just like name off some names that in the top ten. Right, guys that literally finished in the top ten. Oh, this is 2019. Whatever, I'm gonna use it. I don't care. 2019, you got Emerson Keith. Okay. Some people probably know, recognize him. Zachariah Johnson. Hit I know, or miss. I know him, but some people might. Yeah. Joel, Joel Freeman got third. Yeah. Alex Russell. Mm-hmm. Gavin Rathburn. Mm-hmm. Nico. Yep. Andrew Presnell. Jake Lauber. Ron Converse. I mean, obviously, this is a smaller tournament, but the idea, I think, what I'm trying to get to is I think if you lower the number of pros, first off, it's way easier from a marketing standpoint to market all those people because there's way less people. Yeah. It's way easier to create storylines because there's way less people, so you can focus a lot more on individuals. Um, The money goes up, obviously, like purse goes way up. And then the other thing is just like the fans watching, they're going to be able to know basically all those people. Yeah. They should at least be able to know the 25 people that are on tour, the whatever. Now, when you say the purse goes up, you said the purse goes up, obviously uh by cutting the field uh, and losing the entry fees of let's say, let's say the field right now is probably what average 140 players, something like that. If we cut that to a hundred, so uh-huh. we cut 40. Um, do you think that affects you? Like when you say purse, are you talking about just payout or are you saying total purse? Because the total purse has to go down. If there's 40 people, that's like 40 and you're paying what, 200 per thing? Yeah. Uh, so so eight grand. Eight grand. Yeah. So there goes eight grand out of the purse. Mm-hmm. So are you saying the payout, like the top players taking home more with those 40 gone? Or what do you mean by the purse goes up? Yeah, so I mean, I think, yeah, I, I guess it would. I guess instead of the purse go, instead of the purse going up, I think I should have said like the money that the top players get would go up because they're paying out less people. So you break up the pay the payout percentage instead of being forty percent to twenty percent. Yeah, something like that, along those lines. But again, like I think the main thing is like if most of the money that is coming into these tournaments is from the players themselves, I think we all want to get away from playing poker with our friends because that's essentially what's kind of happening. Yeah. Everyone's showing up at whoever's house. We're all putting $100 on the table and we're like, all right, winner takes three grand. Yeah. Second place gets this blah 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 and 20th place gets their money back 
that's essentially what we're doing right now. I think we want to kind of get away from that where, gosh, I, I feel like last time I was on this podcast, I was wondering if PGA guys or surfers or skateboarders, wherever any individual sport, if they actually paid to get into tournaments, if they actually paid or once you're At the, on like to- tour level. Yeah. Or if once you're on tour, you actually like, there's no, I feel like I've heard like, golf. Are there event like, are there, for some reason, I think there's P- the PGA Tour has like a set entry fee, but I think it's like covering green fees and. You think so? I feel like I read that. I don't want to be the quoted only on expense. That. Okay, how much does a professional golfer pay to play in a tournament? The only expense he must pay to play in a tournament is a mandatory fifty dollar locker room fee. So that makes sense. Yeah. Most professionals competing in a pre-tournament qualifying event pay entry fees. Okay. That's it. So a $50 locker fee. Yeah. Interesting. Which makes sense because you're paying basically at that point, you're paying like the staff to, to help your, you know, make that locker room clean and whatever. Yeah. You're not really paying that $50 isn't going into, into the, the pot. purse. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they're paying, I mean, they're paying the nothing first, to the tournament. Correct. From what it looks like on that, a five second Google, the five search. second Google search. That's what, <laughs> that's what it looks like. And it makes sense. Like, you know, if I'm Kelly Slater, like, am I really paying money to to be in an event? No, that event wants me to be there. Yeah. The heck? Could you imagine, like, Tiger Woods being like, hey, I want to play this at the event. And they're like, all right, man, it's $750 entry fee. <laughs> <laughs> they would be, they, that would be the worst tournament director of all time. Yeah. So, but that's what we have to do right now because, like you said, we that's don't, where the we only don't place have. money can come from. So, outside sponsorships, we need more views. Like, Plain and simple. So you, need, is you need to get more views. Blanket statement. And because I know ins and outs of this, it gets complicated. But is the pay-per-view structure bad for disc golf right now? I think it's the only way right now for us to get footage. I think it's the only way. Um, now, I think what could happen is you could have someone that you know, kind of goes like the AUDL route, which is the professional league, the semi-pro league and ultimate Frisbee where you get big time investors that just take all the upcut, uh, upfront costs mm. and hope it takes off and, and they get their returns down the road. And so they make it free. But I think, yeah, I think I th- <laughs> it's just interesting because it's not that far away. I mean, we talked We've talked a little bit about just like how podcasts work and how sponsors look at podcasts and how yeah. many views, you know, you can get a sponsor on your podcast for like 500 views. Yeah. Right now, obviously, you know, that's pretty much chump change. But, you know, once you start getting to like 15,000, 20,000, 25,000, the money gets a little bit better. So it's not like the views aren't insane to get people's attention but you have to almost i would say if your views aren't insane amount you almost have to do all the work for them if that makes sense like you can't just like come to someone like gatorade and be like hey do you want to sponsor a a tournament yeah and then then be like what like you need to be having everything planned out of what you're going to do and i think instead of tournament base i think the disc golf pro tour needs to find a like 
title sponsor for like the tour. tour. Okay. Yeah. I think so that's, like the FedEx tour type of a thing. Yeah. I think they need to find someone that is interested in getting into a new market because the disc golf, the disc golf market is a great market. It's a great market to get into. You have people that, um, not only are diehard, you know, diehard fans and are going to be paying attention to what's going on, but they're pretty, I feel like for the most part, the people I've talked to are pretty knowledgeable of what's going on. And, um, you've got people that are going outside, Yeah, you know, they're willing to spend money on things that, you know, disc golf related. And, uh, you know, I think someone has a real, someone out there has a real good opportunity of getting in with the disc golf crew. Yeah. The disc golf sports. I think whoever decides to like, Hey, give disc golf a chance. I think all the disc golf fans out there would be like very grateful and understanding like this is this big deal. Yeah. And I well, think we saw that with Adidas when Adidas Terex came in. Yeah. Like go to a course at a tournament and just look at people's shoes. They're, they're all Adidas. Pretty much, if you're looking at... I, I would almost say... Maybe this is just my area, but I would almost say 80 to 90% of players that take the sport serious are playing an Adidas... Some type of Adidas trail running shoe. Yeah. And How hard would it be for like a Reebok to come in? Like Theoretically, Reebok come in, say, hey, we're going to be the title sponsor. Uh, make a specific disc golf shoe. Mm-hmm spawn and then uh, and then also on top of that sponsor like the top 10 guys top 10 females and top 10 males and they're all wearing the shoe that 80 percent that you said how much how many of those people now switch over that's the hard thing is because shoes were already done so because it went from but how but if that actually happened right now right now that's why i don't know because everyone loves adidas but you don't think people would switch people would i would yeah, I would switch just to support Reebok. They could be ugly. I didn't. I wouldn't care. But I think it's a huge thing. Like people, people are drawn. You got to think too of all the new players coming in. Yes. What are they going to do? They're going to look at what. What do the top players yeah. wear? Well, that's the. I think that's the opportunity that was missed. Was Adidas was a great, someone great to bring in, but it, they're a weird company because they operate adidas terex operates yeah, separate, separate from adidas, from adidas yeah. so it was like we're disc golf was sponsored by the side company mm-hmm. and so we never even though it sounded great like we have adidas as a sponsor at a lot of events a lot of players it wasn't really adidas it was this and were they paying were they paying players uh-huh. not that i know of or it, playing tournaments i think it was more just a a shoe and Just discount being connected. Code. Yeah, yeah, because I think from from what I understood, anything that was money related need to run through the actual Adidas, the head Adidas, mm-hmm. and disc golf wasn't on their radar. This was a way of them kind of going side door. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, we can just we do can it through the tariffs and we and, do it. Yeah. So that's where I think, I think if someone like Callaway or Nike or personally Under Armour, because I think Under, Under Armour is fire or North Face, something like that. I think if one of them came in a clothing thing and they released a line of polos, performance, performance shirts and shorts and stuff, yeah, where this is the hoodie that fits the uh, that has a pocket that yeah, fits like what the dude tried perfectly. to do, but on a big scale where it can be 
you can actually buy it. Yeah. It's not, you're not paying 200 bucks. Yeah. But I think if someone did something like that, or even just designing something as simple as designing, you know, golf shorts and polos that are meant to stretch the way a disc golfer stretches versus the way a golfer stretches, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I think then you would see a disc golf community rally behind because it's not something that's already competitive, like a shoe where yeah. beforehand people were just playing in running shoes pretty yeah. much. The, the, Paul introduced the world. There's still to the, some people playing in those. Oh yeah. But Paul introduced the world to the Adidas Swifts and literally within a month, everyone and their mom was wearing Adidas Swifts on the course. And everyone was like, how the heck did I play without these? Because you actually had grip. They were waterproof. You know, it changed. Yeah, the waterproof is a... It changed the game in so many ways. Game changer. And all it took was a company to take a little bit of a risk. And, I mean, for Adidas, what were they risking? Nothing. They just sent players some shoes. Yeah. But what no, would... It's, it's a win-win it, for if them. It started with, if it started with Callaway. That's what a lot of marketing companies do. A lot of marketing companies will just reach out to people and be like, hey, uh, can we send you free stuff? You just post on your social media. Yeah, and a lot of people are like, "Heck yeah, heck yeah!" Well, like, that's I do have saying. another thing about sponsors, or not sponsors, but increasing the purse. But go for it. Do you want me to go there? Or you want? You well, want I was to- just gonna say, like, even if Callaway or Nike or someone just came in and said, "We're gonna do a merch sponsorship to test the field with," you know, with the Pro Tour. Let's just not even say players. Let's yeah. say the Pro Tour, and we're gonna become the official polo of the Pro Tour. Dirty. And then just test the field. What are they risking? Like nothing. Just time and money. Yeah, but like... Uh, not that much money, but yeah. And it'd, I feel like the return... just be time. The return, if... The issue is they're just not in disc golf, so they can't see the potential return. But if they... if some, All it's going to take is one company to take that chance, dive in... It's the Reebok of CrossFit. See the return, and then every other company is going to be like, all right, it's time. And that's Reebok when Reebok at UFC. Yeah, and that's when that's when I think we're going to see some explosive growth. It's just a question of what's the company? Yeah. I think who has I the think connection. Disc golf needs to get a little bit bigger though. Just needs to get a little bit bigger cuz right now I don't think it's big enough for someone that wants to take that chance to be able to go and tell their boss, "Hey, Let's take this, this is what we want to do." And the boss be like, "Okay." I think it's got to get a little bit bigger so that crazy person's that's like, bro, I've got this crazy idea, yeah. disc golf. And the boss be like, what? And then they'd be able to back it up with, with statistics. and Yeah, that are a little bit more impressive than what we have now. Yeah. But so before I forget, money, I think Disc Golf Pro Tour needs to start selling their media rights. Do they not right now to a certain degree? No, I think they actually pay. Oh, like the, you're telling Jomez, yeah. Central Coast. I know for I us. I know. I know the, if those people are listening or watching, they probably don't want to hear that. And if you're a huge fan of those people, you probably don't want to hear this. But well, I think that is something that a lot of sports, that's how a lot of sports make tons and tons of money off of is selling the media rights. CBS going to show it? Is Fox going to show it? Is ESPN going to show it? Who's going to TNT? Whatever they those those uh, broadcast companies pay top dollar to be able to have that. I mean, March Madness is huge. Yeah, Super Bowl, all these things. These people pay tons of money to show it. I think right now we're paying these companies. I'm um, not we, but I, from what I've heard. 
I think either the pro tour or the the sponsor of the the tournament. So like Innova, Discraft, whoever. I think they're paying to get the for these main people to come film. And my question is, if you didn't pay them, would they still come film? Because if they didn't, if they weren't filming the big tournaments, what would they be filming? They would just go film tiny tournaments. Yeah. No. Or someone that is willing to pay and and realize that they can make the money back like all these other because because think about it like and again this isn't a knock on these guys because i know all these com- broadcast companies or sorry all these uh production companies that do disc golf they all started when everyone was probably like this is insane what are you doing and they probably took tons and tons of risk yeah but i think disc golf is getting to the point now where I think it's okay to make a little bit of a switch yeah. because let's say me and you start a production company and we want to, we want to start doing the feature card of whatever tournament. Right. And we're going to be able to get, let's say 50 or 60,000 YouTube views of that. And we sell media or we sell sponsor deals on our coverage. None of that money goes back to the players. Yeah. Right. No. Am I, I'm not missing that. We're we're no. we're putting all that money in our pockets. Correct. Oh, but the, I do think the Pro Tour is changing this, um, because of being at this tournament. We mean they're changing it. What do you mean? Changing not money going to the players' pockets, but changing. I don't know for certain that the Pro Tour is paying companies anymore for media rights. Okay. I I think it might be starting to shift the other way. I heard I heard from someone at Discraft that they pay for them to come out to film. I maybe, don't know. Maybe I don't for know. the big ones still, but I know that what I'm saying is shifting is because I had foundation had to pay to be here this week. And so we had to pay a per tournament, per round, and then per subscribers on YouTube. So per, what does that mean? Subscri- per every subscribers. it's tiered. So once you like So the more subscribers, the more you have to pay? Correct. Wow. Okay. So the so they are starting to do it. Yes. But are they doing so that? That's for why the, it was Are they doing that for production though? That's why I don't know. Well, I think if I was a Joe Schmo starting it up, yes. But I think for the ones that are established and they already have contracts with, maybe not. Um, but that's why it was I like important. That. It was I important like that. coming into the week to know: Am I was I coming into this week filming any videos for your channel? Because that drastically changed what I was paying to the Pro Tour. Because oh, am I dropping it, it on a thirty thousand dollar, thirty thousand not dollar, jeez, thirty thousand subscriber channel, or am I dropping it on a two point two million subscriber oh, channel? Oh wow, okay. So they are that gear is the tides are turning in that That's direction. Good. Whether it's turning for the top tier production yet, I don't know. But the fact that they're already putting that into place lower, I feel like it's you know the clock's ticking to where next se- next season it might be something where they're implementing that. Yeah, because I mean, I'm just gonna use Jomez because they're the biggest. But yeah. imagine if, let's say Jomez, okay, they they're gonna film four round or they're gonna film three rounds, six videos. Yeah. Okay. Let's say each video. Do they put ads on their videos, like YouTube ads? Are there if they YouTube? do, it's only before. I think they they I don't think, have mid roll ads because they, they have they have they have sponsors they have sponsored mid rolls which they probably make more money off of than YouTube. I would imagine, or they wouldn't have made that they decision. Wouldn't, they wouldn't do it, right? So they do have YouTube before, though. 
I feel like they do. I to be honest with you, I haven't paid attention to their monetization when I'm watching. Okay. Just, just so let's just theoretically say they do. Okay. Okay. So each video, let's say on average, gets a hundred thousand views over the course of however many, which I think is fair because if yeah. you look at some of their videos from these past tournaments, yeah. If we go average, I think hundred thousand is yeah, maybe, per, maybe even on per, the low side per video. So that that means a hundred thousand with only one ad on YouTube. Well, let's just say if they had multiple ads throughout a hundred thousand, they're probably, I mean, they could, they could make anywhere from a grand to two grand per video. Yeah. Okay. So let's just go on the low side, one grand. Okay. Um, and then let's say on top of that, well, let's, let's actually go to two grand. Cause why would they go with YouTube if they were getting these other sponsors? Yeah. So let's say they're getting $2,000 per video that means for all six videos they're making twelve thousand dollars plus all the money they're making from patreon yeah right which is a lot a huge one yeah which is a lot of money um could even be close to the twelve thousand honestly might be actually might even be more who knows but let's just say let's just round up to 20 okay they're making twenty thousand dollars per tournament now, the question is, should all $20,000 go to Jomez? I mean, my answer is yes. Okay. Because if... So, so we're at... But they're, that, that's with the an idea that they're not paying any money to film. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean... I think in ideal world they're paying the pro tour for the right to be there, and that how much? That would be I like think the question. Flip the script. Whatever pro tour is paying them right now, I, I maybe I think that the I think saying, the pro like, tour model if, is working, uh, or that for the low tier, I think if you apply that to the top tier, it makes sense. Uh, X a fixed amount per subscriber, you know. So then as the channel grows mm-hmm. and as the sport grows, the money coming into the tournament grows, and then. Because I was just thinking, like, if you just said like five grand, that yeah. that could be five grand that you could literally just put right towards like the top payout system. Yeah, and that would change things drastically, I think. Yeah. So instead of winning a tournament and getting three thousand, you're getting you're getting five, five, five or six. Yeah. And then second place is going home with three, considerably more. Yeah. yeah. Um. It's just an interesting thing to think about. And that's just with Jomez. That's not... That's not counting Central that's Coast. That's not counting all these other... Yeah, GK. you go 5,000 with that person. This person does 2,500. Two now, all of a sudden, you just added 10,000... To the pro purse. ...without even having an outside sponsorship. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think... It's something to think about, I think. I don't know a, what is going on or what's happening, but I just know in every other sport media rights is paid for and and i know you're saying like the subscription thing is this what we should be doing right now and it it seems kind of like you're paying for a subscription to watch it but then also other people are making tons of money yeah as it it just seems like a lot of money is going different directions different directions versus going Going all back into the purse i think yeah which i think is what at the end of the day is going to be the most important thing is getting the purse as high as yeah, possible. I agree. If the Pro Tour wants this pay-per-view model to work, to me, you, you've you got to make 
the next day coverage has got to go away. Post-produced. Not post-produced in general has got to go away. I think it's got to be phased out personally. Yeah, that's I mean, a good opinion, actually. I, I don't understand. Uh, like, there's no... You can't name another major sport that post-produces the main way people consume content. And I get... I mean, people will talk about, I'm not sitting down to watch four hours of disc golf, you know, or it happens during my work day. So does golf, you know? But golf doesn't have post-produced, and there's a reason. Because if you want people to pay per view, if like this model, the post produce is killing it. Because the first round is the only round that Jomez isn't covering the same card. Well, there's no there's no reason either that you can't like if you don't want to watch a four hour round, right? Mm-hmm. If that's your reason why you don't want post produce, or sorry, that's the reason why you don't watch live. Just wait if you want. Just wait until the video goes up like the the broadcast goes up and then you just fast forward i mean that's what people do in golf tournaments if yeah. if, if they are like that they'll record record, it, record and it and then skip through yeah i mean i think if it if if it was up to me if i was making all the decisions for the pro tour right now i would say next year next day coverage is gone it's gone and like we're going hold it like a week but yeah a week start it there start it a week so then yeah if people really care about they really just want to watch their post-produced, you're still going to get it. But if you want to watch it in the moment when it's relevant, the only way to do so is through the pro tour. And it just makes, it makes every, it makes so much more sense too, just because like, if you're listening to this podcast, for example, if you don't watch live, a lot of the stuff that you guys might be talking about, people are going to be lost. Yeah, you're gonna be let. You're gonna be felt feel like you're left out because you don't know you don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's gonna make people be more interested in watching the live coverage versus sure. right now. It's they they have the option. Yeah, live coverage or watch the next day. And people are gonna choose the next day because yeah. why wouldn't you? It's it's thirty minutes, and you can watch the full round. So like, and if like think about if you could get, and it's free. Because that's sorry, that's the big of, one. It's free. Yeah, I, I would say like most of the hundred thousand views on YouTube that like these people get, or like what you just put up a practice round of mine yeah. on Foundation. How many views that that came out today? It came out well, I guess yesterday. Early this morning, based, based off of the podcast. Yeah, it came out early. And this it has morning. how many? Thirty some thousand. Thirty. Okay, so those are probably all unique. I doubt people are watching that twice already. Yeah. So thirty some thousand are watching a practice round. That's more than I'm pretty sure that's more than any live. Yeah, the live record is seventeen thousand. So it's almost double the live record. Yeah. If we're if our goal is to try to make this thing look the most marketable to outside sponsors, we gotta be throwing everything into one spot versus mm-hmm. Central Coast, Jomez, Lie, Disc Golf Pro Tour, Lie. And you have all these stats. Yeah. Throw everything. Like, how many people would tune in if everything was just one spot? Like, the only way to watch it is... Yeah. Could we get 75,000 people watching? Possibly. Could There's be. The, the viewers are there. It's just the, the question of... Yeah. And I think uh, one now of the you, keys... Now you have a product. Now you say, hey, we have something that every single time we go live... We're having seventy five thousand people tune in. Yeah. Do you want? Do you want to do something with that? And that's going to be a lot more appealing to. Then hey, we have eighteen here. We've got twenty five over here. Yeah, it's we the same thing as having two here. different tours. It's going to be confusing to an outside sponsor of, 
Do I sponsor the Jomez footage? Do I sponsor the Central Coast footage? Do I sponsor the Pro Tour footage? Do I sponsor all of them? Do How do I pick? Because there's all these different things. And if I'm outside looking in, it makes no sense. I think that's the biggest thing. If you're in disc golf, it makes sense because it's always been that way. Mm-hmm. If you're the outside looking in, having a national tour and a pro tour makes no sense. Having a, you know, all these different channels that people are watching and consuming coverage doesn't really make sense. Of the same tournament. Because think about the think about the advertising dollars too. The advertising dollars right now are getting spread out. Yeah. Right. Because this, let's say a Discraft tournament, Discraft is probably paying Jomez to be having ads in there. They're paying the Disc Golf Pro Tour, obviously, uh, and they're paying you know let's say Central Coast is there. They're paying them as well. Instead of only one way of consuming it, there's one thing they're going to pay that one thing and the total the, of the value is going to be, it's going to be more expensive. Yeah. Right. So to me, it seems like a no brainer. Now, obviously there's going to be a lot of people that probably aren't too happy with this idea, but at the end of the day, I'm just trying to figure out ways or, you know, throw things out there. You know, I'm, I'm a big, huge fan of like, you just throw a bunch of stuff out there until something sticks, <laughs> you know, heck yeah. I, I, I made a career after out of throwing a Frisbee into a trash can that should tell you that sometimes like a crazy idea, it works. Yeah. And I think, you know, instead of just shutting down every idea and be like, no, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to do that. No, we're going to do that. Like, just trying things in small ways. Like let's, I, I don't think like what you're saying, I don't think that the pro tour should be like, Hey, next year, this is what's happening. I think that's a bad idea. I think they should say, Hey, this tournament, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to try it out. We're going to try it. I see what because saying. if it's, if it blows up and it's absolutely a nightmare, be able to change no it problem. back next turn. Next week, we're going back to what we were doing. Yeah. But at least like, at least like try something to see because maybe maybe it'll take off and and then who knows maybe you got something there yeah well that's gonna wrap it up for this week uh thank you guys so much for tuning in we went a little bit longer than normal but you know the conversation just flowed that way uh if you haven't already be sure to subscribe here to check out different clips from past podcasts or this is also where you can find the video of other podcasts or if you're listening on audio on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you find our podcast please uh, leave a review if possible. Let us know if you like it, hate it, whatever it is about it. Uh, we read all, pretty much all of them and take the feedback to heart, and we really appreciate it. Um, I think that's about it. Go check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Discord for sure. We're pretty active in there. And check out our Patreon as well. Other than that, guys, we will talk to you next week.